would like to emphasize that economics is a coordination problem. Introducing arbitrage as one of the main forces, one of the main representations of human action, underlies the various activities of entrepreneurs in the pursuit of profits. The word profit and spread are very closely and very intimately interrelated. It's the spread which invites action on the part of entrepreneurs, arbitrageurs, and all the other actors of human action. And they reap profits. But profits are very ephemeral. The word ephemeral means has very short lifetime. Because as more and more entrepreneurs realize the possibility of a spread which they could act on and reap profits, this spread is going to close and disappear as a direct consequence of the actions of arbitrageurs. So this is how economics is working in practice. It's not an equilibrium sequence. It's a disequilibrium sequence. The, uh, the disequilibrium manifests, manifests itself in terms of the spread, but the spread is going to close and ultimately disappear as a result of human action. However, at the same time, other spreads will open up. This is a constant agitation all over the landscape. And as entrepreneurs close one spread, they open up others. Nilly-nilly. They don't do this consciously. They consciously pursue profits. But that closes spread here, opens up spreads elsewhere. So this is an indefinite sequence. And it's the lack of coordination, or using another expression, the presence of disorder in society, which represents an opportunity for gain, for profit, even though every instance of this remains hidden to most of us who are not entrepreneurs. You, if you are an entrepreneur, you have a seventh sense to spot those opportunities. And then you act, and as a result of this action, disorder is disappearing here, while the disorder appears elsewhere. It's shifting constantly. So there prevails in society a spontaneous tendency for greater coordination driven by entrepreneurship. 
In fact, it is the existence of this process that makes it possible to have theoretical economics as opposed to economic history. So economics is not just a description of what has happened in the past, but it has predictive power because we know what is happening and why it is happening. The disequilibrium creates opportunities. Opportunities uh, create profits, but as profits uh, disappear, other profit profitable opportunities arise. But how does the entrepreneur diagnose the presence of this order in society? Well, he surveys the landscape of spreads. So I'm suggesting it to you that all these spreads, and there are lots of them, if there are N markets, the possibility of spreading is N times N, is N squared. So it's a, if N is a big number, then N squared is even bigger. It's the square effect. So there are lots and lots and lots of spreads, and they form a landscape. And the entrepreneur surveys this, looks around, and picks the spread which for his purposes the most promising to attack. And he uses production and arbitrage. Production has, of course, input and output. And there are arbitrage opportunities at both ends, in, at the input level and the output level. And the entrepreneur is pursuing his profits through the landscape of spreads. This is a gift to be able to see this. I mean, we can all look at it and we see nothing. Just a big confusion, a conglomeration of uh, numbers, statistics, this, that, that. But the entrepreneur has a special eye. He will spot the promising spread and he attacks it. As a result of his arbitrage or attacking the spread, spread closes and then he has to shift. So he will have to have a strategy because he knows that thanks to his own action these opportunities are disappearing. They are short-lived. There is, he has to be constantly on his foot to be prepared to move on. Because as he acts, other people may follow him, and so on. Spread is, the spreads are closed, and he has to move on to other opportunities. However, I suggested that there is a landscape of spreads. We should not look at it as a, a rigid landscape, like a relief map. Because it's more fruitful to look at it as a cobweb. This landscape of spreads is a cobweb. If agitation occurs in one uh, point, call it node, 
the cobweb has nodes, the entrepreneur attacks this particular node, this, the effect of this is spreading all over the cobweb of the network. Some other nodes are affected more, some others are affected less, but they are all affected. They are all interrelated. So disturbance at one node will affect the state of every other node. Accordingly, the entrepreneur attacking one spread through arbitrage will transmit information to and will influence the width of every other spread. So this is an, a very involved but integrated picture and system or network which replaces our very one-sided picture of an equilibrium. I mean, if you like, you could use the language we are talking about equilibrium, but not of a scale, but of a whole cobweb, where this constant agitation spreads, spreading information, changing the picture constantly. So in order to understand the coordination process more fully, we must look at various entrepreneurial strategies. We can isolate two main strategies. One you might call backward-looking strategies utilizing horizontal spreads and uh, the other is aggressive or forward-looking strategies utilizing vertical spreads. So we talk about horizontal arbitrage, talk about vertical arbitrage. My colleague and friend Peter will tell you more about that in the following session. For the time being, we just distinguish between these two strategies. The entrepreneur is fully aware that his own activity is going to destroy the opportunity for profit. Now, there are two ways of handling this problem from his point of view, from the point of view of the entrepreneur. One is to be aggressive, forward-looking, or to be defensive, which is backward-looking. And uh, more fully, this can be described in terms of addressing horizontal and vertical spreads. I won't say any more about this. I just draw your attention that this theory is very fruitful because it gives you a dynamic picture which you can just improve on. What I say is only the beginning, but you can penetrate it more and more and come up with further results. So I could say more about these two strategies, but I think I have another topic to address, which is time preference. 
And therefore, I think I will close this topic, which is really a little add-on to what I said during the previous lecture. So perhaps this is a convenient time to invite any questions or comments from the floor. Please see if there is any. Why not? Just use the entrepreneurial part. Um, in theory, I can easily follow that the entrepreneur should be aware that his action leads the good entrepreneur does, there are poor, poor entrepreneurs as well. It's understood. In practical economies, I see more entrepreneurs, and I really know quite a lot of them, who has this idea. He doesn't even look for a problem, he wants to materialize that, and if he comes up with a value, then it materializes, makes it, it makes the theory, but most of these entrepreneurs are pretty sure are very much unaware that they are using uh, the opportunity of a spread. Uh, how, do you, how do you comment on that? Uh, well, the, the idea that most entrepreneurs are uh, unaware. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, my hunch is that the good entrepreneurs do know, or know better than the poor ones. And the poor ones will fall by the wayside because they are not going, they are losing capital. You see, this is the thing. This is not like shooting crap. This is something where if you don't succeed, you lose your capital and out of the game. So, the uh, successful entrepreneurs will earn these profits as long as they last and move on in a timely fashion to other more profitable uh, fields. The other the ones, the poor ones, sit on their laurels and say, okay, I'm fine, it's worked, or the demand is there, the supply I can uh, create, and everything is fine and dandy. But he will fall by the wayside because of the nature of the game. Now nothing is static, everything is dynamic, everything is changing. So he has to have a strategy. Now there are good strategies, bad strategies in between. And what I say is that I assume that most entrepreneurs are good ones. And if not, this will be a limit, this will be changed relatively soon. The market is not going to put up with that. Yeah, that's the market, the market not mm -hmm. More questions? Well, if not, then I just go on and talk about our main subject this afternoon is time preference. So I go back to my comments this morning. When I explained uh, that as far as the theory of interest is concerned, you still have the same basic theoretical structure. There is ask price, bid price, and the
this refers to the bond market. But it has an equivalent the ceiling and the floor for the rate of interest. <coughs> so obviously the ceiling is higher and the floor is lower. And uh, and seesaw, which I don't have a big enough flip chart to indicate, but as the bond price varies between the higher ask price and the lower interest, the rate of interest moves between the floor and the ceiling in the up, always in the opposite. This is a picture you have to keep in mind at all times. Now, the interesting thing, and this is where we start building our theory of interest, the interesting thing is that these two prices have to be explained how the market process forms there is a market process which is forming the ask price and the market process which forms the bid price. Correspondingly there is a market process which determines the floor and another entirely different market process which creates the ceiling. And the big thing, the big insight, the big discovery is the floor is determined by time preference. And that's where this talk fits in. And the other market process, an entirely different market process, which determines the ceiling, or if you like, the big price, is is productivity of capital. And this is the subject matter for the next session following this one. So at this point we split the narrative. Up to this point, there was one narrative. We are trying to understand interest. But we reached the critical point where we have to separate two things. And why do we have to do that? Well, the insight is due to Karamander, which general theory explains that there is an ask price and a bid price, and they are never ever the same. They're always different. And then, of course, this is variable spread and so on, and gives rise to all kinds of theories. 
explain one initial or another. But the big point is that these are independent these two crises. And the formation of the ceiling is one thing, the formation of the floor is another. So we are talking about time preference if we want to explain how the floor for the rate of interest is uh, established, which means that we are talking about really the ask price of the bond. Now, I already spent some time, so I don't have to repeat the whole thing. I just recall that this morning we did talk about Ludwig von Mises, a very great economist, but he, he was too dogmatic. And he dogmatically announced that there's only one thing to explain, which is time preference, and he did not miss words, he just dismissed the uh, other theory, namely the productivity theory of interest as garbage. He didn't miss words, he didn't <laughs> say that, it's just garbage. Most people who talk about it, which was a good 50% <laughs> of the economists at that time, were dreaming. They didn't know what they were talking about. And this, in doing this, he made a very serious mistake. Because, in fact, there was this problem that the fear of interest looked like a schizophrenic theory. It once it lived in one world, and at other times it lived in another world, and it could not make up its mind what it was going to explain. And accordingly, one group of economists were on this side, another group on the other side, and they were fighting one another. And this was basically a fratricidal war because both factions wanted the same. They wanted to understand interest, but they considered the other group as their enemies. So that was the situation. And, uh, and then I got the insight that this, is, this doesn't have to be that way because they have half a loaf, each of them. And the truth can be approached if they put their two sides of the loaf together and then they, get the, they can have the full loaf. So in other words, Manger had an idea which could explain this duality, this uh, schizophrenic behavior of the theory. Rather than being antagonistic to one another, antithetical, another Greek word <laughs> for, for anti... The Greeks, ancient Greeks said, in philosophy there is 
thesis, there is antithesis, and there is synthesis. So you have a thesis, it's a proposition, but very soon you realize that it's really two antagonistic views, thesis and antithesis. So you create a synthesis, and this we can do thanks to Karl Menger and his idea that there is no need, it's useless to look for equilibrium where there is none. You look for disequilibrium and resolve the seeming contradiction in this way. So this great insight makes it possible for us to come up with a brand new theory of interest which has both legs, valid legs. Mises is right in almost everything what he says except his denigration of the of the uh, productivity theory. And productivity theorists are right in almost everything they say except they're attacking the time preference school. Instead of fighting each other, they should join forces and explain the phenomenon of interest in this way. And, and that is my hope, that our effort will eventually find the resolution in that synthesis which we are looking for. So there it is, we look at time preference. Uh, Mises says that time preference is manifesting itself in the evaluation or the difference between valuation of present goods as opposed to future goods. The same quantity and quality of present good is, valued, is valued more highly by every single individual without exception than the equivalent quantity and quality of future goods. That's too dogmatic. And that's not the way how it is. I already gave you an example. You can find other examples. By the way, enjoying that wonderful Hungarian summer, I might uh, give you another off-the-cuff example. Think of the value of ice today as a present good and the value of ice as a future good when winter comes. Now right now you appreciate a block of ice very highly because it's very hot and it would cool us off if we have access to ice. But in the winter time you have just too much of it. So an obvious uh, counterexample, which I'm not using in a serious way, but it's, it's pretty convincing in, in many situations, that once you have one exception, then the theory built on that dogmatic pronouncement is going to fall to pieces. And the one example is that the present value of ice in the winter time shows that it's not true that future goods are always very valued at the lower value because if you look at the value of ice in the winter time you will see that the value of ice in the 
in the future will be higher. But that's just an off-the-cuff remark. So we have to replace this idea of building a theory of interest on the difference of valuation between present goods and future goods. And what I'm suggesting and I'm working on, and I've already talked about this at earlier meeting, I'm talking about it again, and this is that the real problem is not the difference in valuation between present and future goods, but it is the problem of converting income into wealth and wealth into income. This is a specifically human uh, problem. If we were immortal as the Greek gods were, this wouldn't be a problem. Because income and wealth, if you live forever, have the same value basically and there's no need for conversion but we are not immortals as the Greek gods were we are mortal very much so and we are aware of it and therefore there are specifically human problems which have to do with the fact that we are not going to live forever and I just mentioned two there are many others, but these two are possibly the most important. One is the problem of educating the young. Because this is a provision for future. The young may be just too young to learn and get the education. We have to wait until they grow up and reach university age or whatever level we are talking about. And uh, uh, we have to convert our present income, a part of our present income, for future wealth, which then will convert back and use as a way of educating our uh, children or grandchildren or whoever we want to, whoever we care for. So that's the problem of caring for, for or saving, if you like, for the education of the young. But there is another problem which I emphasize among many others, these two. The other problem is the problem of one's old age. As we grow older, our power to generate income is fading, but I but our need for an income may be growing due to health problems and the very fact that we are no longer able to handle and manage our wealth the same way. So in preparation for our old age, while we can generate this extra income, we should convert it into wealth and that wealth will then be available when we reach our harvest years to be converted back into income to make it possible for us to enjoy uh, the old age uh, as free from worries and shortages or what have you. 
as possible. This is a very real problem. Now, I can say that. Well, there was a time when I couldn't care less, so <laughs> old age. But you see, as you grow older, you become more and more aware, and maybe too late. You can't postpone this too, uh, too much. And, and that is a very basic human need. So, in other words, in society there is a need to convert wealth into, well, to be logical. First you have to have income, convert it into wealth, in order that later you can convert the wealth back into income to use it where you really need it. So there is this conversion one way or another, but a, a very basic human problem to solve. And that is the basis of the theory of interest. This is a real need. Every one of us, without exception, is subject to the demands which move us towards that. So the problem of Scrooge and Shylock and all those literary figures who are denigrated as uh, coin pinchers or all kinds of uh, bad uh, names you could call them, this is, uh, this is a mistake because there is a basic need and one person can realize it more than another but basically no exception. Everybody should worry about this problem and the solution to the problem is interest. How does interest affect this conversion? Well, the first answer is that in order to solve this problem, uh, you could use the material the commodity, whatever it may be, which serves the best for the purpose of converting. Through hoarding that material, you build up wealth out of income. Bits and pieces, you build it up, and when you need it, you can dishoard the same material and convert it into an income. And you look around and survey all the available commodities and whether you like it or not, the fact is that it's the precious metals, especially two of them, gold and silver, meet the, this criterion the best. The most suitable material for hoarding and dishoarding purposes which facilitates this conversion of income into wealth and back from wealth to income is uh, these two monetary commodities, monetary metals, gold and silver. And as I say, you may have all kinds of preconceptions about the you may like these metals, you may dislike it, you may even hate it, and it's not difficult to find people in the Federal Reserve and elsewhere who do <laughs> hate gold and silver. Not as if they wouldn't have any. I, I have a bet ready, if you are willing to uh, wager with me, that Ben Bernanke, 
also has a little bit of Nasdaq stashed away in gold or gold coins or whatever. It's long government bonds. That's all oh. he does. <laughs> <laughs> long government bonds. <laughs> all right. So joking aside, the fact is that we just have to accept this as we have to accept many other facts that gold and silver are the material which are given to us which can facilitate that conversion. And if you want to optimize the conversion of wealth or income into wealth and wealth into income, then you have to fall back on hoarding and dishoarding gold or silver. However, this is not the end of the optimization problem. And the reason is that exchange comes into the picture. It's one thing to hoard <coughs> or discord gold, which has a, a great handicap, it's a great disadvantage that it takes time. If you are a young man and you want to save because you want to be your own boss and want to start your own business, you start hoarding gold, but it would take perhaps 10 years or more longer to accumulate enough so you have a capital and you can start your own business. And that may be too late. By the time you have your NASDAQ, you are too old or in any case, you are taking a much bigger chance as if you could make this conversion on the spot. So the ingenuity of the human mind invented exchange. There are lots of young people and old people who live in the same society. The young people have a surplus of income and a shortage of wealth which they could use as capital to start their own business. And the elderly have a surplus of wealth and a shortage of a deficit of income. So rather than hoarding and dishoarding, why don't they just make an exchange? And this can be made right here and now. You don't have to wait 10 years to hoard or dishoard. And that's what's happening. And it's happened even under the prohibition of uh, lending and borrowing at interest. Remember that historically, both canonical and secular laws uh, prescribed as usury lending and borrowing at interest. Only interest-free loans were recognized, but nobody would lend or, uh, I mean, I can see people would borrow if they could without paying interest, but nobody would lend them. So for that reason, you have to have an incentive, and that is what interest is. So as soon as society wakes up and realizes that further improvement in the efficiency of converting income into wealth and wealth into income is possible, but only through the agency of exchange. Then, once 
this sinks in, and, so, and uh, as you know, historically, Reformation and other movements uh, played. Uh, in, it was an interplay of many influences, some religious, some not religious. Just the fact that those businessmen who were borrowing and financing the businesses uh, at, uh, and paid interest, we, they were more successful. So, as a result, all these prescriptions gradually disappeared and it became possible to, to do the exchange. As I say, most of the time it's a young person getting the capital from an elderly, but it doesn't have to be that way. And the whole thing was made impersonal with the appearance of the bond market. Because then you no longer know how old the uh, buyer of the bond, bond is, how old the salaries and so on. This all dissolves in a big melting pot and that's the bond market and that's a huge market. It's uh, about ten times as big as the stock market so it's really huge. And, uh, I'm not talking about today with these derivative monsters, I'm talking about traditionally the bond market was in the order of 10 times greater than the stock market. So that shows how serious this problem is and the solution is interest. And we know when we talk interest, we talk bonds, bond market, because that is the market process whereby the rate of interest is uh, formed. So there it is. This is the solution to the problem, and uh, we just have to be able to see it. We have to try. This is not so obvious, but you contemplate on the problem and try to do this, which actually took centuries using your own brain. You can compress the length of time and you realize that this is actually what has happened historically that the idea of bonds, bond trading and interest became acceptable and that increased efficiency beyond anybody's dream because all the uh, amenities of our life today including therapeutic amenities and, and conveniences, transportation, food uh, production, and, and just name it, anything. The whole electrical industry, transatlantic shipping, transatlantic airlines, tense, uh, what's the word, uh, intercontinental shipping, intercontinental flying, is all explain why it happened just in our days or in the past century or two is not by accident. After all, the principle of uh, steam turbine <coughs> was invented already in the first century after the birth of Christ. And a Greek by name Hero invented it, but he used it as a toy, and he was marketing it as a toy. Because 
In order to make this idea applicable in real situation means accumulating capital. But there's a big stumbling block. People couldn't accumulate capital because of the prescriptions on interest. So it had to wait, had to wait 1700 years in that order before the capital could be accumulated and the steam turbine could be turned, could be used for producing electricity and helping society. Another example which I like to use is the invention of the airplane. It's not a modern invention by any means. Leonardo da Vinci invented it, but on paper. And it worked on paper. And he couldn't build a, a prototype, a model which he could test on the field. Would it fly or would it not fly? Because it's a very capital-intensive proposition to build an airplane, even the very simplest ones. Remember, there were balloons, flying balloons, and uh, airships, and all that before the uh, actual airplanes, which used power, and not the uh, fact that uh, hydrogen or helium is lighter than air, to fly. And it, this was very capital intensive, so that's why we had to... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci knew it, it was there. He made very detailed uh, blueprints of his invention. But nobody came and said, oh, I'm going to finance it for you. Let's see whether it flies or not. Nobody did, because it was a very big proposition to accumulate enough capital. So this is my point, that in order to telescope time into a manageable length of time, that you can come up with capital, financing this or that project, you have to have a mechanism which does it. And hoarding and this hoarding is not going to work. You have to have exchange. And interest is a measure of the efficiency in this conversion. How exchange helps you to improve the efficiency of conversion, without which you have to fall back. Now, I'm going to give you five minutes for questions, but before I just give you the last thought on this time preference subject. And this is the following. Why is it important for us to realize that there is this chasm between converting income into capital, capital back into income, via hoarding and dishoarding and exchange. Because if somebody throws the monkey wrench into the works and sabotages society's system of exchanging income into wealth, wealth into income, society will suffer to be sure. 
But those who save, and save gold and silver in particular, they are not left out in the cold. A lot of entrepreneurs will, a lot of inventors will, a lot of productive, very valuable people will suffer. And society is depriving itself from uh, very great advantages. But those who save can fall back on conversion by a hoarding and dishoarding. And this is very important. This is very important. So, if you have a government, and the government is arming itself with Keynesians on the left, and Friedmanites on the right, and say, what, what a nonsense, what an anachronistic, what a stupid idea this gold standard is, the government with all this power, the army's air force, atomic bombs and so on, will not be able to stamp out those who save with the help of gold. The, the government can ruin its own business, it can ruin its own industry, can shoot itself in the foot and do a lot of damage. But the one thing the government will never ever be able to do and that's history is the witness. Think of the French Revolution where hoarding gold was a capital crime, uh, rewarded by capital punishment uh, under the guillotine. You, your hand was chopped off. History goes on. So that's the lesson. That's the lesson. Uh, we have an understanding of the mechanism of the exchange of the bond market, but we have to know that the governments have a limit when it comes to sabotaging it, and, and my friends, that's what we are seeing. The government is sabotaging the exchange mechanism which uh, ever since Reformation uh, developed into a very important, very great force of our civilization, which changed the whole landscape because people could finance, the inventors could finance the realization of their inventions, entrepreneurs can greatly simplify production procedures and so on. And the government not seeing it or not realizing it comes in, it's an elephant in the china shop and destroys, ruins a lot of value but basically it is not going to be able to stamp out the uh, original conversion of income into wealth and wealth into income. So that's my message about time preference. Will you please open the floor for questions either on this topic or any other topic you wish? Questions? Yes. You're talking about the, the, the vast transformation between the ages, you can say. And uh, if we're talking about the land, if, if you're uh, collecting land and you produce something, and you know that uh, from the last 40 years the population of the world is doubled almost, then uh, it's uh, why can be the, the, the producing something as a, as a farmer, 
can acquire with the, to to handling the gold or the silver? All right, that's a very good question. I think it occurred to many of us, and uh, there is an answer to that. The answer is uh, liquidity. Land is the most illiquid asset you can have. It's a very great asset, it's absolutely indispensable. Gold is not indispensable, you can still eat. But if you have only gold, even eating, the, 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 uh, uh, the comedy of King Midas shows that everything he touched became gold, so ultimately couldn't eat. And, but if you have land, you can produce. So the first idea is, sure, this is more important than gold, However, illiquid means that you can accumulate, but this will be counterproductive. The more land you control, the more uh, uncertain the price of the land is going to be when it, there's a concentration. And that's true not only of land, but many other. Practically everything else, with these two exceptions, gold and silver, has declining marginal utility. Which means if you have more, it's valued less. If society has too much land, then the land values. And there are very convincing examples that real estate prices cannot go sky high. And uh, we are fortunate enough or unfortunate enough but to live in one of those times. Well, because we talk about this, uh, the, the only risk that we can take is the natural risk. And uh, if you buy homes, that's not natural risk because it's speculation. But if you buy the land, then you take the natural risk because maybe the weather will be bad or good, but it's a natural risk. But, but the land values are subject to the same danger. They, you know, yes, you build, build if the price is too high and the prices will collapse. If we can think that the worst can happen, that for example the Fed destroyed the whole financial system, <laughs> then uh, everybody will barter. Uh, if I have a land, I can produce something, I can buy oil or something else, but if I have uh, maybe gold, I can barter it. Well, I'm not arguing that you cannot. Uh, all I'm saying is that your terms of trade will deteriorate because the uh, assets you are trading are not liquid. Which means when you buy, you probably overpay the price, and when you sell, you probably get less. So on balance, you may end up as a loser, no matter how important the thing is which you are trading. So that's all I'm saying. That, uh, and there are lots of historical examples, so I don't really feel that I'm on the spot and have to convince you, because all these historical examples do show. I mean, after all, remember this. The French assignats and mandats, these were the paper currencies issued by the revolutionary government in France during the great French Revolution. They were not like the US dollar today, payable in nothing but 
of the same kind, they were actually vouchers for land. The land was confiscated from the church. The church had huge land holdings all over France, so the government confiscated it and said, okay, we're going to print paper money, and this is not backed by hot air, it's backed by the land, which you don't believe, you go and touch it, it's there, and it's producing, etc. And where did it end? It ended in the garbage can of history, because the land is not a proper asset on which you can base paper money. Why not? Um, doesn't that question address uh, that we have to distinguish between productive assets and means of exchange? Because land is a productive asset. And for sure, when you need to something to buy, you need that first. And with that, you can create value. And I see either gold or whatever money it is, gold is the most reliable means of exchange. So that is why how it became gold and silver money through ages. But the money itself is not a productive asset. It's yeah. to, to, to use productive assets and exchange the values produced without having to rely anymore on part. So I, I distinguish between these two classes. Then the different class than money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Reg? And, and land in itself may or may not be a productive asset because <coughs> land is only one factor of production. Uh, you have to have other factors present. And that's questionable under what circumstances these uh, conditions are met. Yes? I would comment on that. My parents in the 1930s left New York and went to a farm and they had money to buy and then we survived. But you produce and you can eat it. You still need flour, or you take it to the mill and you have to have it uh, and there's no way to do that. So, land, yeah, you can eat it. You can produce what you need, but it is not a, and you can't sell it. So finally they abandoned it in uh, 1942 and went back to New York to work. So it gives you an, an indication of what land is under land based conditions. Thank you for your comment. Any other questions? May I Peter? One, one remark to the gentleman. I think he mentioned natural risks and man-made risks. Did you? Yes. Um, buying and selling land or accumulating land is not necessarily a natural risk. Farming is a natural risk. Yeah. But by speculating with land, that's what I mean. You know that distinction. No more questions.